Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm Eileen, and joining me as always is Colleen. How you doing, Colleen? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I wanted to thank everyone who signed Yvonne Telegoose's petition and contacted the governor. For those who are not familiar with Yvonne Telegoose, he was a subject of last week's episode. Yvonne is going to be executed on April 25th, and we believe he's innocent. And I have to say, we were so touched with the amount of comments we got saying that people reached out to the governor and signed the petition. Hopefully, we're making a difference and can help save this man's life. On to happier thoughts, though. We have a couple of five-star reviews, shout-outs. Uh, thank you to Anthony2257, Ziggy Zag Marley, and Jazz Sims for your reviews. If you're liking the podcast and have a minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your reviews help us out and help other people find the podcast. We also have a new Patreon supporter. Uh, Thank you to Mary for your generosity. And if you would like to support the podcast and get access to things like stickers and mugs and access to bonus content, please check out patreon.com slash misconductpodcast. Also, we have a podcast recommendation. This week um, is our friend at Canadian True Crime Podcast. Go on a journey through many of the most heinous and shocking crimes in recent Canadian history. Hosted by Christy Lee, an Australian true crime fanatic who has lived in the greater Toronto area for many years and is a proud Canadian citizen. Yeah, it's really awesome. I really enjoy it. So with that housekeeping out of the way, let's get started. This week's case is related to the episode we released last week about the death penalty case of Yvonne Telegoose. It's not a part two but we will be referencing last week's episode and continuing our discussion of capital punishment in the United States. If you haven't heard it, go ahead and pause this and go back and listen. Yvonne's case is really important to both of us. Um, You don't know how much we'd appreciate it if you gave it a listen and called Governor McAuliffe's office and asked him to grant Yvonne clemency. So today we are discussing the trial, conviction, and eventual exoneration of Clarence Lee Brandley, In 1980, he was working as a janitor at a high school in Texas. On the morning of August 23, 1980, Cheryl Lee Ferguson was found murdered in a loft above the auditorium where Clarence worked. Some forensic evidence was recovered from the scene, but was lost or destroyed before it was tested for trial. Eventually, the evidence was tested, and it was proven it could not have come from Clarence. Even with all the issues with the evidence, Clarence, an African-American man, was convicted in front of an all-white jury in 1981. Eleven months later, he was sentenced to death. The appeals process began immediately, and six days before Clarence's scheduled execution, a stay was granted. It came out 
that a lot of the evidence and testimony against Clarence was fabricated or purposely misinterpreted to make him look like the perpetrator. In 1990, Clarence was exonerated. After his conviction was overturned, it became clear that Clarence did not receive a fair trial. It came to light that most of the evidence and eyewitness testimony was manipulated by the Conroe Police Department and the DA to frame Clarence, who was their suspect from day one. As a result, Clarence spent almost a decade in prison and was within a few days of being executed for a crime he did not commit. Today, Clarence's story is another name on the list of cases investigated and tried in a county that had an extensive problem with racism. August 23, 1980, was a Saturday. Conroe High School in Conroe, Texas, was scheduled to start in less than two weeks, and the staff was preparing for a new year. Clarence Lee Branley was a 29-year-old janitor who was working that morning with four other janitors. Cheryl D. Ferguson was a 16-year-old junior from nearby Belleville High School. She was a member of her church's volleyball team and was at Conroe High School that morning for a scrimmage match. Cheryl was last seen walking down a school hallway around 9 a.m. and was never seen alive again. Three janitors who were waiting for their next assignment for the day said that they saw her heading towards a bathroom at a deserted end of campus. She was reported missing almost immediately and her team began searching for her. Other staff members, including the janitors on campus, joined the search. Around two hours after Cheryl was last seen, her body was found in a loft above the auditorium. Clarence and another janitor named Henry Peace found Cheryl in the space that's used for prop storage. The murder was brutal. Cheryl was raped and strangled with something that was estimated to be approximately an inch and a half wide, such as a belt. It was estimated that she was killed very shortly after she was last seen. Her clothes were missing, with the exception of her gym socks. The clothes would be found in a dumpster outside the day after her body was found. She had bruising patterns on her hands and arms that the medical examiner initially said were consistent with two attackers instead of one. Investigators also recovered DNA evidence and a pubic hair from the scene. The murder sent the town of Conroe into a panic. Parents of teenage girls threatened to keep their children out of school until a killer was caught. Groups of parents called the police consistently from when the news broke until Clarence was eventually arrested. Conroe is a city in Montgomery County, Texas. It is approximately 40 miles north of Houston and falls in the Houston, the Woodlands, Sugarland metropolitan area. Hmm. In 1980, Conroe was home to about 18,000 people. The majority of the population then and still is now white. In 1980, less than 5% of Montgomery County's population was black. During my research, I read news articles from back in 1980, around the time of the murder, and a member of the neighboring county sheriff, who was black, was quoted saying that he doesn't go to Montgomery County. Hmm. Conroe and Montgomery County and its justice system have a complicated history that is steeped in racism. In the 80s, the KKK was still holding meetings where they burned crosses in the open. Neighborhood towns were segregated due to decades of housing covenants that dictated what families could live where. Most of the black population lived on one section of town and white people lived on the other that was literally demarcated by railroad tracks. Hmm. Um, Black people accused or suspected of committing crimes against white people were usually found guilty or worse. In 1923, 
And now at the time of this crime, that was only 57 years previous, and there were older residents who actually remembered this happening. A black man was accused of raping a white woman and was burned at the stake on the courthouse lawn without trial. Oh my gosh. In 1937, a black man who was appealing his conviction of the rape of a white woman was shot in the head in the courtroom by the husband of the victim. Uh, The husband was acquitted of all charges two weeks later. And just a few years before Cheryl's murder, a black teenager named Greg Steele was shot multiple times while in police custody by a police officer. The white officer was allegedly mad that Greg was dating his cousin and claimed self-defense and was subsequently acquitted of all charges. Of course. Conviction rates of people of color in Conroe were disproportionately high. Cases where the victim was white and the accused was black were convicted nearly every time. Since the black population in Montgomery County was lower, most juries were all white. Even though the population was lower, the representation of black people on juries in Montgomery County was still lower than it should have been. Police from the beginning of the investigation considered Clarence a suspect. Police questioned him and Henry Peace, the other man who found the body with Clarence, immediately after they discovered the body. Henry Peace reported that during this investigation, Texas Ranger Wesley Stiles told them, quote, one of you is gonna have to hang for this, And then he turned to Clarence and said, since you're, and used a racial slur, um, you're elected. Hmm. And at this point, they had not been arrested or charged with anything. Clarence maintained his innocence and voluntarily took a lie detector test. Uh, The results showed that he was telling the truth and that he had nothing to do with Cheryl's murder and he was released. About a week later, the polygraph supervisor announced that he reinterpreted the results and said that Clarence actually failed the test. And then Clarence was immediately arrested. The trial began in December 1980. And during the trial, the most influential testimony came from Clarence's co-workers who worked with him. There was Henry Peace, Gary Ackerman, Sam Martinez, and John Henry Sessom. And they all testified against Clarence at his trial. They claimed that between 9.15 and 9.45 a.m., they saw Cheryl head down a hallway towards the bathroom Shortly after, they said they saw Clarence with an arm full of toilet paper headed in the same direction. Ackerman said that he told Clarence there was a girl in the bathroom and that Clarence responded that he would go into the boys' restroom first. He also said that Clarence told the four of them to go to the vocational building across campus and that he would meet them there with the keys to let them in. According to the men, Clarence would not show up for 30 to 45 minutes. Clarence voluntarily appeared before an all-white grand jury before the trial so he could tell his side of the story. Uh, He thought it would be helpful, but it ended up being used against him. The prosecution used his sworn testimony to build their timeline that explained their version of the events of the day. Clarence said that he sent the other janitors to the vocational building and then took a quick break to smoke a cigarette. After about 15 minutes, he says he took the keys over and met up with the other guys. At the trial, all the janitors said he was gone for 30 to 45 minutes. So because Clarence testified before the actual trial, the prosecution had his version of the events, and that allowed them to make sure their story contradicted his. Clarence's attorneys attempted to poke holes in the prosecution's theory of the day's events at trial. They interviewed the other janitors and came to the conclusion that Ranger Stiles may have coerced them to align their stories and implicate Clarence. 
In addition to the testimony, the prosecution claimed that there were two black hairs found on Cheryl's socks that were consistent with Clarence. There was hair recovered from Cheryl's pubic area, as described in the medical examiner's report, but they were consistent with a white male. In addition to the hair, there was a DNA sample recovered from Cheryl's body, and in 1980, DNA testing is nowhere near what it is now, but testing could be used to exclude suspects. The DNA evidence found on her body was not tested against Clarence. Uh, When the defense asked to test both the DNA and the hair, they were told by the prosecution that both were accidentally lost. There was also blood evidence at the scene found on Cheryl's blouse. It was type A, which did not match Cheryl. The defense submitted evidence showing that Clarence is type O, therefore the blood evidence doesn't match him either. And this means that there's really no physical evidence linking Clarence to the crime. Unfortunately, the defense was unable to convince the all-white jury of Clarence's innocence. They voted guilty 11 to 1, with one holdout who was not convinced of Clarence's guilt, William Schreck. Uh, He refused to change his vote to guilty, and Clarence's first trial ended with a mistrial. Once his name became public, he was subject to intense harassment and threats. He received phone calls to his house saying that he better hope they, and I quote, they never catch him alone after dark in this town. A second trial began two months later in February 1981. The jury was once again all white, and the prosecution presented the same theory as before, and even chose to drop one of the janitors, John Sessom, as a witness. Uh, Later, it would come out that he was not called because despite threats of perjury from law enforcement, Sessom was refusing to testify again to corroborate the other janitor's stories. To replace Sessom, the prosecution had a high school junior and former part-time janitor named Danny Taylor testify. Taylor was fired before the crime happened, but said that in the months before his termination, a group of white female students passed by them, and Clarence allegedly said, quote, if I got one of them alone, no telling what I might do. Now, I think that's just convenient. Yeah, that's amazing how they were able to drop one guy and get to this other guy who... They literally lose a guy who who corroborates the story, right? Mm -hmm. And then they just replace him with basically a character witness, right? Like a... Someone who's going to speak to Clarence's bad character. Right. The one time he worked with him, <laughs> what, few few months, and I happened to notice that he said this horrible thing to me. Wow, that's very convenient. Glad they found him. That's, <laughs> you know, it's horrible. The medical examiner also testified in this trial. <clears throat> He said the bruising around Cheryl's neck was consistent with bruising that could be caused by a one and a half inch belt similar to a belt owned by Clarence. And so I would say that uh, one and a half inches for a belt is probably a standard size for a belt. And a lot of people wear belts. So why is it just his belt? Yeah, like someone owning a one and a half inch wide belt is not like groundbreaking evidence right and it's just medical exam i don't know it i don't it's just that's silly it's like oh look he has a belt wow (laughs) in addition the da claimed without evidence that because clarence had a second job at a funeral home it was likely that he was a necrophiliac who violated (laughs) cheryl after she died 
The defense objected to this claim, calling it inflammatory and completely baseless, which I agree. Yeah. But the judge overruled the objection. It was later revealed that Clarence occasionally did odd jobs there, but was not involved in burial preparations at all. And again, I think the second trial is all about his character because the first trial, they didn't get a conviction based on evidence. Mm -hmm. So now they're bringing in this high school junior and then this crazy allegation that he might be a necrophiliac. So does does that mean everybody who works at a a funeral home must be a necrophiliac? I mean, what? So as you guys may guess, we have notes here (laughs) that we need to talk. And my note is a bunch of characters (laughs) written out of... uh, It's just blows my mind that that's even that was said in court I I just don't even know what to say to that like seriously I it seems desperate it very but the it it the judge overruled the I mean of course the defense would object right of course they're gonna object to that's silly I mean it's stupid it's silly it's baseless it's you know and and the judge overruled it that's just blows my mind too it's it's insane yeah i mean that's just probably one of the craziest things i've ever heard and we've been doing this a little bit now (laughs) (laughs) so based on the recommendation of his defense attorneys clarence did not testify in his uh second trial they were afraid of alienating an all-white jury and this is not uncommon um in a lot of these cases and on february 14th 1981 the jury found clarence guilty 11 months later, he was sentenced to death, and um, he was immediately transferred to prison. After the trial, defense attorneys found that the prosecution had hidden and intentionally lost evidence that could clear Clarence, such as the hair and the DNA. But also pictures from the day of the crime showed that Clarence was not wearing a belt that day, but the defense never saw those pictures. And even though there was proof that the DA purposefully got rid of and hid evidence, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals upheld the verdict sentence, the verdict and the sentence in 1985. They ruled, quote, no reasonable hypothesis is presented by the evidence to even suggest that someone other than Clarence Brandley committed the crime. But in the summer of 1986, a woman named Brenda Medina from Cut and Shoot, Texas, saw news coverage of the appeal case on television. She told a friend that shortly after the murder in 1980, her ex had told her that he, quote, killed a girl in Conroe and was leaving town. The man, James Dexter Robinson, was a janitor at Conroe High School but quit his job about a month before the murder. Brenda said that he woke her up in the middle of the night, the day of the murder, and was extremely agitated. Before she fell back asleep, he said that he hid the body well enough that she would not be found until he got out of town. When she woke up later, she realized he had taken most of his clothes, with the exception of sneakers that looked like they had spots of blood on them. She said she threw those out shortly after Robinson left. Brenda didn't report it at the time because she thought it was a ploy to get out of paying child support. She was 16 years old and pregnant with uh, his child at the time. In 1986, she happened to see Clarence's case on the news and realized a girl actually was murdered around the time Robinson left, and her friend urged her to call a lawyer, and the lawyer took her to the DA. The DA declared Brenda to be an unreliable witness, therefore they did not alert Clarence's defense team to the new evidence. 
They claimed that because she was unreliable, they were under no obligation to pass on her information. The attorney who brought Brenda to the DA disagreed and contacted the defense himself. Which I am very happy they did that. I don't imagine if they didn't. See, I think he might have been on the news a little bit more in 1986, too, because his his execution date was approaching. Mm -hmm. I mean, if she hadn't come forward or if she had missed the newscast that day. Right. You know? Oh, my gosh. It's just crazy. And I can't believe that they're like, no, we don't. No obligation. That's fine. (laughs) It's kind of unbelievable. It really is. The defense team had Brenda produce a sworn statement and they petitioned the appeals court for an evidentiary hearing. In addition to Brenda's testimony, the defense team brought another witness to testify. Edward Payne was the father-in-law of Gary Ackerman. Ackerman, if you recall, was one of the janitors that worked with Clarence and testified against him at both trials. Edward Payne testified that Ackerman told him where Cheryl's clothes were before they were found by the police. When asked if Ackerman would have committed this crime alone, Payne said, no, the only way he might have done it is with somebody else. Payne said that he brought this information to the DA during the trials, but the prosecution told him, quote, no, I've built my case and we know who did it. (sighs) Well... Anyways, another interesting thing to know is that Gary uh, Ackerman and James Dexter Robinson were not just co-workers, they were also friends who socialized outside of work. Furthermore, multiple police, uh, excuse me, multiple people said although Robinson didn't work at the school anymore, he had been hanging out there the day of the murder. Brenda said that the two men were running uh, partners and that she had come home to the two of them doing drugs. With a confession to Brenda the night of the murder and Ackerman knowing where Cheryl's clothes were stashed, it seemed like the two were becoming prime suspects. The defense called one more witness, and this was actually John Sessom, the janitor who refused to testify against Clarence at his second trial. His testimony in the evidentiary hearing was explosive. He said that he saw Ackerman follow Cheryl into the auditorium and heard her scream, no, don't. Later, Ackerman approached Sessom and told him not to tell anyone what he saw. Sessom says that he told this all to Ranger Stiles and that Stiles threatened him with arrest if he didn't support Ackerman's testimony. And where have we heard that before? Hmm, that sounds awfully familiar to a case we just talked about recently. <laughs> um, you better say this theory I have or else, right? Yeah, or else, you know, you're going to jail or... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're going to get the death penalty or, you know. Yeah, because this is what we want, you know, has, you know, just really seems to me in these cases, especially the last two, uh, that it's not really interested in getting to the truth, you know. More interested in following the theory that they already have. Right. And this is who I, you know. This is this like well, like the DA said, right? I've I got my story pretty much. That's what's going to happen. So yeah, and then a very similar thing with the Vaughn's case, where you know it's tell me that that he hired you. <laughs> so based on Brenda Payne and Sesson's testimony, the defense requested a new trial. Robinson testified that he did not kill a girl in Conroe in 1980. He said that he was not even in Conroe on August 23rd, 1980. Although this claim wasn't corroborated. Robinson said that he made the statement that Brenda was talking about during an argument with her in an attempt to frighten her so she would stop nagging him about money. Robinson took two polygraph tests, one from the defense, one from the prosecution, and their results contradicted each other. Hmm. And in October 1986, a judge denied the request for a new trial. The appeals court reaffirmed the decision two months later in December. I just feel like it's happened so much where it's kind of like you had your day in court. And it's like, yeah, but not when it's not fair or... I didn't have a fair day in court. Right. Um, Or things were hidden or, you know, by the prosecution or... Well, just that he takes two polygraph tests and the defense is like, yeah, he's lying. But the prosecution's like, no, it looks like to us he's telling the truth. It's. Yeah. And it's just, I feel like, you know, you watch a lot of documentaries and things like this when you're going through these appeals and just every time it's like, nope, nope, nope. And it's, I don't know, to me, this is just blatant to get. (laughs) It's a cover up. It's an absolute cover up. Exactly what it is, you know. And you're. You know, you're covering you and you're dealing with somebody's life, quite literally. So it's frustrating. Um, With the denial of the new trial, despite this overwhelming evidence, the defense saw lots of outside interest in the case. Civil rights groups began fundraising for his defense and raised $80,000 on his behalf. There was also a local group called the Coalition to Free Clarence Lee Branley that advocated for Branley to get a fair trial. Eventually, the case was picked up by national news outlets. And this caught the attention of James McCloskey, a private investigator that helps uh, free wrongfully convicted people from prison. He met with Clarence's family, lawyers, and eventually Clarence himself. He began investigating the case and decided their best bet would be to get more of the janitors to admit that they lied. With Sesame already on the defense's side, McCloskey met with Gary Ackerman and questioned him. McCloskey said Ackerman began shaking uncontrollably uh, and that he wanted to make a new statement. Ackerman videotaped a new statement implicating Robinson in the murder. He said he saw him drag her uh, Cheryl into the girl's restroom and heard her screaming. About 10 minutes after the screaming stopped, Clarence came up holding toilet paper and Ackerman told him that there was a girl in there so he should go into the boys' restroom first. He also said that he saw Robinson put Cheryl's clothes in the dumpster outside, and that matches what Ackerman's father-in-law, Payne, said. Clarence's lawyers brought the new evidence to court and were granted a stay of execution less than a week before the scheduled execution date. Wow. And I mean, just like, 
thankfully they got that information in time. I mean, so close. And can you imagine being six days away from dying? I mean, just imagine, I, I just, you know, when I think about that and I think about sitting there and just knowing that you're going to, you know, die. It's horrible. It's torture. It's pretty awful to think about. And I mean, maybe Ackerman felt guilty knowing the execution date was coming up and he decided to make a statement, mm-hmm. you know, as I mean, his guilt got the best of him. I would hope, you know, I mean, I, I, I know there's plenty of reasons why, you know, you could, as we saw again with Yvonne's case, why maybe these people, you know, were any case really where you can be coerced in saying something that's not true, right? With threats and all this stuff. But in the end, you know, yeah, if it's guilt or whatnot, that gets, yeah, it gets the best of you. So, um, well, the DA interviewed Ackerman at length after this day of execution. They announced that Ackerman had recanted the confession he had given to McCloskey. Mm-hmm. Almost immediately, two new witnesses came forward to make statements. The two women worked at Conroe Taxi Company, where Ackerman was a part-time driver. One woman said that she had been discussing the case with Ackerman and another co-worker at the office shortly after the crime. She remarked that she didn't think uh, Clarence did it. She said that Ackerman seemed to be drunk and jumped out of his chair and said, Clarence, in a quote, Clarence did not kill that girl. I know who did. Clarence did not do it, but I will never tell. The other co-worker, who was the second witness there, she also cooperated the story. So among all the sensationalism with the witnesses in the case, the defense filed for another evidentiary hearing. And on June 30th, 1987, the hearing was conducted with Robinson, Ackerman, and Ranger Stiles testifying for the prosecution. Robinson stuck to the same story he'd been telling the whole time. He said that he told Brenda he killed a girl in Conroe in 1980, but he only told her that to scare her. What changed in his testimony was that he actually admitted to being at the school the day of the murder for the first time. Also at this time, it was confirmed that Robinson has type A blood, which matches the blood found on Cheryl's blouse. Ranger Stiles testified as well. He denied that he did anything wrong. Uh, of course, but he did admit that Clarence was his only suspect from the beginning. When he was directly questioned about why he didn't get a hair sample from Ackerman to test against the hair found on Cheryl, he became flustered and said, quote, let's say I didn't do it and it wasn't done. Why it wasn't done, I don't know. And, <laughs> oh my gosh, that reminds me of the Richard Rosario. Oh, yeah. Guy, but, okay. <laughs> Just like, well, it wasn't done. I don't know why it wasn't done. Yeah, I don't done. know. I, yeah. <laughs> Which is not a good answer. No. Um, on October 9th, 1987, the judge granted Clarence a new trial. In his ruling, he stated, the litany of events graphically described by the witnesses, some of it chilling and shocking, leads me to the conclusion the pervasive shadow of darkness that has obscured the light of fundamental decency and human rights. Uh, The judge said that Clarence was a victim of racial prejudice, witness intimidation, and perjured testimony. Awesome. I know, awesome. Uh, The Court of Criminal Appeals would sit on the judge's recommendation until December 13th, 1989, and the prosecution appealed the ruling, which delayed the new case for another 10 months. Hmm. The appeal was denied, and the trial was to proceed. In the meantime, Clarence was released on bail in January 1990 uh, while the DA prepped for a new case. 
On October 1st, 1990, instead of a new trial, all charges against Clarence were dropped. Hmm. After Clarence was released, he was ordained as a Baptist minister, and Clarence applied for compensation with the Texas Comptroller's Office, but his claim was denied because he allegedly does not meet the requirements set forth by law. Clarence was told that he waited too long after he was released, and the law says a claim has to be filed within three years. (laughs) In addition to his compensation application, uh, Clarence brought lawsuits against several state agencies in Texas, but they were all unsuccessful. And to this day, Clarence has not received any compensation for his wrongful incarceration and near execution. And none of the people who put him there have been held accountable. And he's not received an apology for this, which is abhorrent. It's all of it. All of I mean, not even an apology. And I just love how it's like, oh, well, they dropped the case. (laughs) It's because they knew. They had nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, you filed too late. I, we took a decade of your life and almost killed you and put you through the ringer, kept denying you your appeals when you had plenty of evidence to show you deserved a new tr- freaking trial. I can't, I just, I can't believe that. I mean, and how, I wish he could, he went in to, tr- you know, sue. I wish he could, I don't know, get somehow somehow get something for this yeah and i I think these people what really i think just really gets my goat and a lot of the stuff none of the people on the state side are ever held accountable i feel like ever very rarely especially not in this case and i mean this was a pretty egregious case right right? And, and nobody really answered for that no and you guys almost i mean not only i mean i think it's bad just to put somebody in in prison Right. I mean, that, prison is a violent, dangerous, you know, place that you need. We need to be 100 percent sure they deserve to go there, not to mention death penalty. And you guys not only put him in jail, but almost killed him. And I mean, not even a sorry. You know, excuse my like, screw your apology. He needs money for I mean, I'm sorry what you put him through. I mean, can you imagine sitting there just sitting there and I mean, six days away from your execution. I mean, six days away. I can't imagine how that feels. It's completely awful to think about. Terrifying, right? Yeah. So we didn't get too much into our opinions on the last episode because we really wanted to focus on Yvonne Teleguz's case and just like the facts of his case. But we want to discuss our opinions more here, kind of like we were. Uh, So I'm against the death penalty. Eileen's against the death penalty. Uh, In the United States, the death penalty is packaged and sold to us as a deterrent method that's supposed to prevent the worst kind of crimes. But statistics show the death penalty just doesn't work that way. It's not an effective deterrent. Furthermore, we keep seeing these cases of wrongful conviction. Clarence got within, like we were saying, six days of his execution. And by the time this airs, unless a stay is granted, Yvonne will be within three weeks of his execution date. Yeah. Troy Davis was executed in Georgia in 2011 after all witnesses, basically except one, recanted their testimony against him. And I mean, if we want to be a society or a country that kills our citizens as punishment for a crime, I don't think there can be any error. We have to be 100% certain of the guilt of people on death row. And the fact of the matter is that oftentimes we just aren't sure of that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think you kind of said it all, right? I mean, our system isn't perfect. Again, as Colleen's, I'm against it as well. I think when I was younger, um, 
you know, to be honest, I probably didn't think terribly much about it, but I was kind of like, yeah, you know, people should pay for it. And, and I think that's, you know, like you said, it's sort of packaged as, you know, it's a deterrent and hey, this is a horrible crime. It's sort of eye for an eye kind of stuff, but our, our system isn't perfect. If I've learned anything through the years and especially doing this podcast really is not perfect. And we need to be a hundred percent sure before we sentence somebody to jail, much less killing them. And I don't believe killing people as a punishment because I don't want to give the state, you know, this is what I kind of the conclusion I came to. Um, I don't want to give the state the permission, you know, to kill off people we deem undesirable. Uh, you know, because you have the logistical, you know, like I said, we, unfortunately, we, you know, can kill innocent people. And also, do we want the state to have, you know, that power? Um, and are they they're killing people in kind of your name in a sense? And I don't want that to happen. And no, it's not a deterrent. Um, and actually, a recent study at the U- University of Colorado shows that 88% of the nation's leading criminologists do not believe the death penalty is an effective deterrent. And I agree because I feel like people kill for a few reasons. Um, you know, there, there's passion or heat in the moment, so they aren't thinking of consequences. If you walk in on your wife or your, you know, husband, and you you, you you're not thinking you're you're acting um then there's compulsion so you know people who they can't help it so consequences to be damned really right you just can't help what you're doing or people do it for gain or personal gain money convenience you're in my way so i'm sure they they weigh the consequences but in the end they think they can get away with it so they're going to do it anyway um that all said you know i do see why someone would you know you would be for the death penalty and I'm hope I'm never in the position where a loved one is murdered and I have to deal with that pain and and that want of justice and revenge you know which I think what it kind of boils down to and I'm sure and if I'm honest with myself and if something ever happened to my wife I I would want that person dead I mean if I'm being completely honest I'm sure I would um but I just think we have a bad track record and you know we're not perfect and our system isn't perfect it's made up of people and people aren't perfect and again I feel like it's just seeking revenge and and I don't think it's a deterrent um and that's that's the end of my soapbox (laughs) I agree though I I mean I don't want to like get on my soapbox and act like I can't understand someone's position who might be for the death penalty right yeah I totally can I think I just you know I I I guess I'm just scared of the like criminal justice aspect of it not being, you know, it's a flawed system, mm-hmm. but I don't want to sound, you know, insensitive to someone who's had to go through, I mean, just the most unimaginable, horrible thing. Right. Me too. And and I feel like if I was probably in that position again, I get it. I, I get it. But, you know. Uh, we wanted to leave you with some facts on the death penalty so you can draw your own conclusions and we'll link them on our website. Since uh, 1973, over 150 people have been exonerated from death row. Ten occurred in 2013. False informant testimony is the top cause of wrongful convictions. At least ten people have been executed even though there were serious doubts about their guilt leading up to their execution. So the first case I got involved with in trying to raise awareness uh, was Troy Davis, who was executed in 2011 in Georgia. Um, 
I was in college at the time and one of my criminology professors brought him up to our class and he was executed and there's serious doubt about his guilt that persists to this day, but at the last minute he was denied a stay of execution. Sad. Uh, California, which has the largest death row in the country, has spent $4 billion on the death penalty since 1978 while carrying out just 13 executions. Uh, Death penalty cases are significantly more expensive than non-death penalty cases, and the greatest costs associated with a death penalty occur prior to and during trial, not in post-conviction proceedings. So even if all the post-conviction proceedings, like the appeals, were abolished, the death penalty would still be more expensive than alternative sentences. Uh, More investigative costs are generally incurred in capital cases, particularly by the prosecution. In trials in which the prosecutor is seeking the death sentence have two separate distinct phases. There's the conviction, you know, determining the guilt and the innocence or innocence, uh, and the sentencing. Special motions and extra time for jury selection typically precede these trials. The death penalty diverts resources from genuine crime control measures. Spending money on the death penalty system means reducing the resources available for crime prevention, mental health treatment, education, and rehabilitation, uh, meaningful victim services, and drug treatment programs. The South has consistently had the highest murder rate while accounting for 80% of the country's executions. The Northeast consistently has the lowest murder rate, and accounts for less than 1% of the country's executions. In 2014, three executions involving the experimental lethal injection protocols were botched, and this caused inmates to gasp, choke, and writhe during the executions, and some of them were actually called off. It's awful. All European countries and many American pharmaceutical companies have banned the use of their drugs and executions and this is related to what we are seeing in arkansas so this month the state of arkansas is planning to execute eight men in 11 days and this is an unprecedented number of executions in such a short period of time lawyers and corrections officials both have decried the move and lawsuits have been filed against the schedule citing the speed The governor says this is a move to bring closure to the victim's families. Arkansas carried out a triple execution in 1994 and 1997, and those executions were considered uh, unusual as well. This time, the state plans on two executions per day on four separate days between April 17th and April 27th. The executions this month are going to use the controversial sedative midazolam, something that the state has not used in the past. The sedative is supposed to render the inmate unconscious so they don't feel pain, but midazolam has been in the news lately due to botched executions. Several executions involving midazolam saw inmates writhing and gasping in pain. And in 2015, the Supreme Court ruled that the use of midazolam is not considered cruel and unusual punishment, so it's still allowed to be used. Hmm. The executions are being expedited because the state's supply of midazolam is expiring at the end of April. Unfortunately, the rush timing of these executions cause a compressed timeline that will deprive inmates basically of their rights. The schedule doesn't leave time for things like clemency appeals 
And in Arkansas, you can't apply for clemency until your execution date is set. So for some of these men, the clemency deadline was 10 days after they learned of their execution date, Mm. which basically leaves the lawyers no time. Right. Furthermore, Arkansas is actually having trouble getting the required amount of witnesses for each execution. Uh, The director of Arkansas's Department of Correction asked the Rotary Club for volunteers to watch executions. Wow. I think this is an example of just an overzealous governor in the Department of Corrections trying to get their money's worth out of a drug that's expiring. And it's incredibly irresponsible to move. Like, it's, it's just an incredibly irresponsible move that sets a dangerous precedent. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So these are our thoughts on the death penalty. Obviously, we could go on on this subject for hours. And we would love to talk with you guys more about this on our Facebook group. Again, if you haven't listened to our episode on Yvonne Telugu's and his upcoming execution on April 25th, uh, please go ahead and give that a listen. Uh, We will um, also include information on how you can contact uh, Virginia Governor McAuliffe to stop Yvonne's execution. And if you're interested in contacting Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, you can reach him at 501-682-2345. So that wraps us up for this episode of Misconduct. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's case, head over to our Facebook group or find us on Instagram or Twitter at Misconduct Podcast. We also want to give a huge shout out to the Blank Tapes who do our awesome intro and outro music. You can find them on SoundCloud and give uh, their stuff a listen. And like we mentioned in the opening, we just launched our Patreon. We have a bunch of really cool stickers and our mugs just arrived this week. And we just released our first bonus episode this month uh, on Dorothy Jane Scott. So if you are at that level, you'd be able to uh, get that bonus episode. Um, You can check out our Patreon site for more info on how to get some of that really cool merch and early access and all that uh, bonus episodes. Anyways, thank you for listening and we will see you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.